Whenever you've seen something extraordinary, it's hard not to want to talk about it. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. This was brought home to me a few years ago. Uh, Claire and I were traveling on a very short overnight trip to Germany. We had traveled to watch uh, Germany v Northern Ireland Euro 2020 qualifier in the Commerce Bank Arena in Frankfurt. Uh, and I'd been chatting to Richie Cronin, my former assistant minister. He phoned me while I was on the, the train to the stadium. So I'd, I'd been chatting to him, telling him where I was, what I was up to. And after he saw the final score, he, he sent me a WhatsApp. 6-1. I would love to be in church with you next week because he imagined I was going to uh, give it to the people. I, I said, Richie, I'll, I'll have to go easy. Uh, I'll try to lead with grace. Pray for me. But it's not hard to see where, where Richie was coming from. It's human nature to want to talk about exciting events that you've experienced. You see, we can't help but speak about things that we've seen and heard. This evening, as Noble says, we're back in our recommissioned series after a week off last week as we were in Secularity Explored. And we're going to add another layer to the story. Just to remind you, recommissioned is a title I've given this series because I want us as a church family to be recommissioned by God's word. Uh, I want us to, to set aside any notions that we have of what our calling is or who we're supposed to be things that have landed on us by our, our history or tradition, things that we adopt because of the wider culture or the church culture around us, things like that, they're, they're quite interesting, but they're secondary. The thing that's primary is, is God's call on us. What does God want us to be? How would God commission us as his people? So we're, we're wanting to be recommissioned as we come to God's word with this question, Lord, what, what kind of a church do you want us to be? We've reached a point on our journey, we've actually been, you may or may not have noticed this, we've, we've been moving through the Bible, it's taken the form of a Bible overview. And the last in this series, which I preached a couple of weeks ago, uh, we really were reaching the end of the Old Testament part of the journey. If you remember, we were quite, uh, we were in the prophets, we were in Jeremiah and Isaiah. We were talking particularly about the, the, the teaching of Isaiah later on in his, in his prophecy about the church as the light of the world. If you remember that, we're people who attract others to God. Well, the, the layer we're going to ask uh, add this evening, Noble's already mentioned it, we're people who know the one true and living God. With this, I think we're, we're sort of crossing over into the New Testament, and that Acts passage is probably the anchor passage for us this evening. There was a time when pretty much every evangelical in the, new, in the UK knew knowing God. Uh, a lot of you will know what I'm talking about. Knowing God was a, a theology, a, a book published by my theology professor, Dr. Packer, in the year I was born, in 1972. It was a huge help to millions of evangelicals the world over, and it's helped people to, to know God better in a personal way. The knowing God that we're going to talk about here this evening is the kind of knowing God that the Bible speaks about. 
The Bible, when it talks about knowing God, always talks about something that's going to change us. Whenever we come to know God, it changes us. God, you see, doesn't show us who He is so that we can feel different in our hearts. He shows us who He is so that we can diff live differently in the world. He wants us to take up a responsibility, an agenda, and a mission. I'd like to take a moment before we, we move into these Bible texts to really stress that. All real experience of God changes us. Whenever Chris Wright describes the experience or knowledge of God, he says, it never stays merely intransitive. Now, that, that's one of those words that people who write books use. What does he mean? If something's intransitive, it means it doesn't go anywhere. This knowledge of God that the Bible calls us to is always transitive. It's always taking us somewhere. It's always affecting us and through us affecting other people. We've seen this in some of our earlier chapters in this series. Let this be a wee recap for you. If God blesses you, it's so that you can bless others. If God redeems you, it's so that you can demonstrate redemptive grace to others. If God loves you, feeds you, and clothes you, you should go and do likewise to others. If God brings you into the light of his salvation, it's so that you can shine with that light and attract others to come and know your same Savior. If you enjoy God's forgiveness, then make sure you forgive others, and so on. So what we're going to talk about this evening is being people who know the one living God and Savior. And once we come to know him, we can't help but make him known. This evening we're going to think about three things. What we've seen, what we believe, and how we behave. So first of all, what we've seen. Turn with me to Acts passage. Um, you maybe have a finger there as I advise, page 1095 if you don't. In Acts chapter 3, Luke has told us the story of how a man crippled from birth was healed by Peter and John in the name of Jesus. And the NIV heading halfway through chapter 3 tells us that Peter then speaks to a watching crowd about what's just happened. He refuses to take any credit himself for what's happened. He explains that Jesus of Nazareth, and, and remember, he's been crucified in the city a few weeks ago. Jesus of Nazareth, people know that he's been crucified, but Peter says he was, in fact, the Messiah God had promised to their ancestors. But now God's vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, and he has thus kept his promise to Abraham. The healing of this crippled man was a signpost to what God could now do for them spiritually. Even as Israelites, the blessing of Abraham would come to them now only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, this passage that we've read, it, it describes the, the shockwaves that go out through the Jewish religious community. Put yourself in their shoes. You've crucified this guy. You've sorted that problem. 
only to find that weeks later, people are in the streets of Jerusalem saying that he's risen and that they're acting in his power and speaking in his name. Peter and John, they're called before the Sanhedrin to explain themselves. Look at how chapter 4 works. Peter builds a bridge here between two events, the healing of a crippled man and the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. He starts with a crippled man, verse 9. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, nobody, not even the religious leaders could deny that the man who was crippled is now standing, all right? He, he's standing. If a crippled guy's standing, there's a problem for, for anybody who wants to dispute this. He's standing in their court. There was nothing they could say about it, so the religious leaders, they put the healed man out, and verse 16, they'd started to talk among themselves. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny it. So Peter starts with talking about the crippled man, but he moves on to talk about Jesus, verse 10. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What Peter does here is really interesting. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in the same way that he talks about the healing of the crippled man. He's bearing witness to an undeniable event. For Peter, the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead, every bit as much has an eyewitness testimony as the fact that this man was healed. He's saying in effect this, you've seen a man healed from a disease and you can't deny it. We have seen a man raised from the dead and we can't deny that either. Look at verse 20. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Friends, we're people who know the one living God and Savior. It's critical to remember that the whole of our Christian faith is based on historical events that have been seen and corroborated by public testimony. Our faith isn't based on religious speculation. It's not based on wishful thinking, however spiritual. It's not a good idea or good advice. The gospel is good news about something that happened and was seen. Click with me for a moment to our other passage, Deuteronomy 4. Moses is preaching his farewell sermon. The people are just about to leave him and to travel on into the promised land. He prepares them to move forward by inviting them to look back. Remember, he says that you've seen God in action. Look at verse 32. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like this ever been heard of? What, what's he talking about? He's talking about how the living God appeared to his people. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? 
Moses goes on, he reminds the people that God hasn't only spoken to them, he saved them. Verse 34, has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Moses wants the people to understand that they know the one living God because of what they've seen. So there it is. The first thing to notice this evening, we're people who know the one living God and Savior because of what we've seen. Both our passages this evening begin with people seeing something of God, but they don't stay there. In both cases, what God's people see changes what they believe about Him. They come to know their God and to know that there is no other. Still in Deuteronomy 4. Look at verse 35. Moses tells us why the Lord showed himself to his people as he did. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. The Old Testament's full of passages which affirm the uniqueness and the incomparability of God. I'll take a moment to show you a few of them. Flick with me to Exodus 15, page 73. It's the song of Moses and Miriam after God's brought his people through the Red Sea. Look at verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer, no one. There's no one like the God of the Exodus. Flick then to 2 Samuel 7. You'll find it in page 311. God has graciously promised to give David a dynasty. God wanted to build, or David wanted to build a house for God, and God said, no, it's all right, don't worry about that, but I'm going to give you a house, a dynasty. And David responds in a prayer. Look at verse 22. David says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there's no God but you as we've heard with our own ears. This time it's David who's speaking of the uniqueness and the incomparability of God. The prophets speak of God's uniqueness. In chapter 64 on page 750, Isaiah speaks of God's power to save his people. Look at verse 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any gods besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And one last passage, Micah talks about God's unique willingness to forgive sin and to pardon transgression. Chapter 7 of Micah, page 936, we find Micah asking, verse 18, who is a God like you 
who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. So although we've just scratched the surface with a few passages, we're in no doubt by now that the people of God who have seen God act have come to believe something about him. They've come to believe, as Moses put it in Deuteronomy, that the Lord is God and beside him there is no other. Flick back with me to Acts 4. It's just brilliant to see what Peter does with this theme. Just as Moses wanted the people of his day to understand on the basis of what they'd seen, that there's only one God and no other, Peter wants the same for the people of his day. Read with me verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. There's something that Peter wants them to know on the basis of what they've seen. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then look at the great conclusion to Peter's evangelistic sermon, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now that's a famous verse, and rightly so. But what makes it so astonishing is that Peter's talking about Jesus. You see, without reference to Jesus, Acts 4.12 is spot on. It's still a very good articulation of Old Testament theology. If you read that verse without thinking about the story in which it's set, you'd say to yourself, well, I could easily be reading Isaiah or one of the prophets. Wouldn't that verse sit very well in that list of verses from the Old Testament we've been reading just a moment ago? Every one of Peter's judges in the Sanhedrin that day would agree with Peter's statement if that's what he meant. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Absolutely. No question about it. We all know our scriptures. Preach it, fishermen. That's what they'd be saying in the Sanhedrin. But of course, that's not what Peter meant. And this is what made his preaching that day so shocking and so offensive. He wasn't talking about Yahweh. Or at least he wasn't talking about Yahweh in any way that excludes Jesus Christ from a full identification with him. Peter knew his Bible, and I think he knew what he was doing when he used this no other name language. He was taking the truth that he and everyone in the room believed about Yahweh and calmly resting them on top 
of Jesus Christ. According to Jesus Christ, according to Peter, Jesus Christ, whom we call Savior, is the one living God of Old Testament Israel. Jesus has become the one who carries that unique, divine, saving power. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord God of hosts, whom we read about all through Scripture. Friends, we are growing here, I hope, as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are people who know the one living God and Savior. So far this evening, we've been thinking about what we've seen. Moses was able to appeal to the people of God in his time because of what they'd seen in the saving acts of the Exodus. Peter was able to appeal to the, the people of his day because of what they'd witnessed in the saving work of Jesus, who'd been crucified and raised from their dead in the city just a few weeks before. The gospel, it's good news about something that's happened and that's been seen. But we want to move on to see how what we've seen has implications for what we believe. Moses told the people, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and besides him there is no other. He wanted the people of his day to see the, the uniqueness and the incomparability of God. Similarly, Peter, he's stressing the uniqueness and the incomparability of God while making it clear that this unique, incomparable God is now revealed fully and finally in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I, I want to finish by showing that, that this uniqueness of God must change how we behave. Australian pastor and theologian John Dixon describes the uniqueness of Christ as the driving force behind all our efforts to bring the news of the one true Lord to our friends and neighbors. If there is one God to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance, the people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. This belief in the uniqueness of Christ and mission are intimately related. The existence of just one God makes our mission to the many essential. In another passage which I was reading of John Dixon recently, he says a very interesting thing. He says that our mission, our desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only a rescue mission. He, he says it very much is. It's a rescue mission. But he says it's also a reality mission. We have to show people the reality that there's only one God and that he claims their allegiance. 
How does what we have come to know about the uniqueness of God in the Old Testament and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in the New Testament change how we behave? Let's look very quickly one last time at our, our two passages. We'll start in Deuteronomy this time, Deuteronomy 4. The great truths of Deuteronomy 4, which Israel, they're told they're to know these truths and take them to heart, they pave the way, actually, we're, we're maybe not go to Deuteronomy 4, flick over to Deuteronomy 6, that very famous central passage in the whole of Scripture, the Shema. Deuteronomy 4 paves the way for this great affirmation, this great command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Moses calls the people. They've seen this God act. They've discovered that he is entirely unique. There's no one else like him. So Moses says, all you can do is love him. A total commitment. A total devotion. A commitment of intellect, will, emotions, energy, everything. How are we supposed to love God with all of everything? It's the only right response, says Moses. One Lord, one love, one loyalty. That's the challenge of Deuteronomy. What about Acts? What's the outcome in that passage of Peter's insistence on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Have a look with me. This is the last passage we'll look at. Back to Acts 4. What we discover in Acts 4 is that the religious authorities, after they've heard Peter and John, tell them to keep quiet. Do you understand why they have to do that? If what Peter and John is saying is true, it's the end of the world as these guys know it. It's the end of the world on which their system is based and where their power is derived. But Peter and John wouldn't betray or deny the truth they'd experienced. And so they make their majestic reply. Look at verse 19. These Jewish religious leaders trying to silence them Peter says, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Friends, if Jesus Christ has been crucified for us, if he's been raised from the dead, if in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, then this world-changing reality can't be silenced. Either Jesus is the one Savior and Lord, or he's not. 
and if he is, then with Peter and John, we're called to stand up for him with total loyalty and unwavering witness. When I read a passage like Acts chapter 4, when I read a verse like chapter 4 verse 20, it doesn't feel a lot like me. It doesn't feel a lot like us in Bangor in 2024. You see, I know it's 2024. I thought I'd close by sharing with you how I've been challenged about my and, and possibly our reticence to speak about Jesus in the way that Peter describes here in Acts. And the challenge has come to me from very surprising sources. Some of you will know that we have friends from Iran worshiping regularly with us some of whom have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They have been asking me on a couple of occasions recently, why don't Christians in Bangor talk more about Jesus? In Iran, if we do, we'd be in grave danger and might well lose our life. But that's not the case here. Why aren't you talking all the time about Jesus? point. I've met a new friend recently who hasn't been around church for years. He's been astonished as he's come to church to find it a living, vibrant, dynamic place where he's, he's finding himself drawn very, very quickly toward Jesus. He finds church very different than he remembers from his youth and his childhood. And he's been asking me the question, how are the people out there going to know that it's different than they think? That church has changed? How are they going to hear about Jesus? Who's going to tell them? Aren't those great questions? And it's the new people in the church who are asking me them. Wouldn't it be great if we could very naturally and very unselfconsciously give the biblical answer? We'll speak to the people of Bangor about Jesus. We're people who know the one living God and Savior. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard so much. Many of us have heard your word preached faithfully for years and decades. We've heard the gospel articulated clearly many, many times. And Lord, we've seen so much too. We've seen your power at work in our own lives.
We've seen you work in our church and across the world. Lord, we have seen and heard so much, but yet we can be slow to speak, to speak in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would put a fire in us, the fire of your Holy Spirit, that spirit who fell at the first Pentecost, who turned fearful fishermen into brave prophetic preachers, who turned 12 failing disciples into apostles who took the gospel in all directions and planted churches and raised communities of Christ followers. Lord, help us to say along with Peter, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Lord, by your spirit, may it be so. Amen.